Hello, and welcome to Turn Down Your Stereotype, a new wave feminist podcast. Now, full disclosure, I've got a little bit of a cold right now, so you guys are going to get my sexy NPR voice, but don't worry, that changes in a minute when we get to the actual interview. Uh, Just wanted to give that disclaimer because I know it's very irritating. So here's the deal. For years, people have been asking us to do a podcast, and I've been reluctant because, quite honestly, it was just one more thing for me to have to learn. I'd managed to dodge the Snapchat and TikTok fads, mostly. Uh, But podcasts seemed to be sticking around, and truthfully, I started feeling kind of selfish for not having one. I mean, I get to talk to fascinating women almost every single day. I learn from them, I grow through their stories, and I realize now that it's time to share those stories with all of you. So here's the thing. None of these women fit neatly into just one box. Some are pro-life, some are pro-choice, some are religious, some aren't. They have different party affiliations or no affiliation at all, but they're also so much more than just that. These labels, labels we often apply as a jumping off point when making small talk, they aren't actually the totality of who any of us are. They merely make stereotyping us easier and make it easier for us to stereotype others. And we want to go deeper beyond the stereotypes, beyond the labels. We want to have the necessary nuanced conversations that can only happen when we go beyond them and push qualifiers aside. I had the pleasure of speaking with a phenomenal woman, a woman named Katie, who has changed my perspective on so many things. What is Katie's label to the outside world? Well, she'd probably say birth mother, although she prefers the term first mother. But what does that label actually mean? What was her journey actually like? Today, I want to invite you all to come along as we explore the reality of this difficult decision. A decision that wasn't hers, but a decision that fully impacted her life and her daughter's. Parts of this conversation are going to be really tough to listen to, especially if you've adopted children or been touched by adoption in any way. But this is a conversation that needs to be had, especially within the pro-life movement, where adoption is often a sappy slogan we slap onto really difficult and traumatic moments in others' lives. A lot of you might listen to her story and simply think she fell through the cracks, or that her experience is an anomaly, and it's not. These cracks have been carefully designed for decades to catch women like Katie who are facing unexpected pregnancies. I want to challenge you to stick with it, listen to the whole thing, hear her story, and more importantly, hear her heart. We owe her that, and I promise you it'll make us all better and more ethical activists in the end. It's time for us to turn down our stereotypes and tune into the reality of what this and I'm using air quotes, choice actually looks like for so many women and their children. But the diamond is in the rough. But the diamond is in the rough. All of us just spinning, all of us just spinning. Today I'm joined by my friend Katie Burns. She is a warrior, someone who suffered at the hands of those who should have been the most ethical but sadly let her down. All of this, however, has made her a tireless advocate for others in her situation and an activist that you guys are all going to want to know. So thank you so much for joining me today, Katie. Hi, Destiny. Thanks for having me. I have heard your story now a number of times, and the thing that always gets me is it is it is completely wild and unbelievable, yet it's not entirely unique. Um, and okay. obviously this is something that because – For a long time, you did feel like maybe this was just your personal experience and other people were having great experiences. Um, It it kind of led you to keep quiet a little bit. But as you learned more, it 
has really led to you doing some amazing activism work, which I would like us to be able to get into. But first, could we start just with you telling me kind of your story, the details of your unplanned pregnancy? Um, I was a freshman in college. It was the end of my freshman year. I was 18. And um, a boyfriend of mine I'd known from high school um, found out that I was pregnant at the end of our freshman year of college and the plan at first was that we would get married and then in about a two-week time span my life just completely flipped upside down um the boyfriend decided it was all too much for him and broke up with me and then within about two weeks i was in a hit and run accident where a semi truck just totaled my car so my car was gone which means I lost my job. I had no way to get to to work. And then I ended up having to move back home from living in the dorms. And I ended up having some pregnancy complications. I ended up in the hospital for a couple of days. Um, My plan was to go to summer school because I thought maybe I could get ahead. Um, You know, just trying to, to, I, I wanted to parent my daughter and I was trying to do the responsible thing. And um, I ended up getting sick, and I so I had to withdraw from summer school because you know in summer school you just if you miss so many days you you miss a lot of stuff. So I withdrew from school. I've moved back in with my parents, um, and then they tell me basically you know if you plan on keeping this baby, you're not going to live here. Um, so at that point, you know I, I have no boyfriend no school, no job, no car. I'm back at home and I'm being told I can't live at home. In a month Um, prior, a month prior, you kind of had your shit together. Like things were on a upward. I mean, I I was uh, on scholarship. I was an honor student. I, you know, I'm in my freshman year of college. Like I wasn't the most confident person in the world, but, you know, I I had a lot of things going for me. Um, So this was like, within just a matter of weeks, you know, I'm, I'm at rock bottom of my life and I'm pregnant, you know, I'm now I have a child, um, to think of going through all, all of this, you know, craziness that's happened in my life in just such a, a short time span. Um, so, uh, then I don't have insurance because it's coming up on, you know, it's the summer goes by and at the time insurance uh medical insurance you had to be a full-time student to have insurance and so i wasn't going to be a full-time student i had decided i just wasn't going to go back and fall i was going to try to get a job and to work and um so i'm going to job interviews and as you know time goes on i'm showing more and people aren't you know really wanting to hire somebody that's obviously pregnant um, so I ended up having to uh, get on Medicaid because I couldn't prove, you know, I wasn't a full-time student. So my dad's insurance dropped me and I go to, you know, the, I guess it's the health department um, to sign up for Medicaid. And my, my plan was at that meeting, um, I wanted to find out everything that was available to me because I, I didn't, I mean, we weren't rich but we also I didn't grow up on any kind of like social assistance program so I really had no clue as to what was available to me 
And so my plan was I was going to meet with this lady and, you know, not only get Medicaid, but can I find housing? You know, I'm about to lose where I live. You know, can I get some kind of um, school assistance, transportation assistance, just anything, you know, that will that will help me parent my daughter. And um, so I get on Medicaid and she the lady looks at me and just kind of snarls and says, babies having babies. And, you know, I, I just sank in my chair because I already felt like I had failed my family. I had failed myself. Like, um, you know, this wasn't planned. I mean, I knew I wanted children eventually. This this wasn't a planned pregnancy. Um, and I think just the responses from everybody made me feel like I had just failed you know, my entire world. And then to have this, um, you know, health department worker then like sneer at me and, and call me out, you know, and be like, babies having babies. I didn't ask for anything because I didn't want to appear. I, you know, this was in the nineties and the whole like welfare queen was kind of the, the thing at the time you know, and I didn't want anybody to think that I was just trying to like, I don't know, game the system or something like that was that was not um, who I was as a person. Um, so once she said that, I, I didn't ask for anything else. I, I needed Medicaid because I was pregnant. I mean, my daughter needed, you know, I had to have prenatal care. But at that point, I didn't ask about housing or anything else because I was just, I was so ashamed at that point. Um, I didn't even know about child support. You know, nobody, nobody throughout the entire process ever told me what was available to me. I thought child support was just for married couples. Um, because I mean, at the time there wasn't like DNA testing and all that stuff. So it was like, it's my word against his word. Like, how am I going to prove without us being married that, that he's the father of this baby. So I didn't even know like that was accessible to me. Um, the Medicaid slips back then were bright pink. They were like eight by 11 pages and I'm sure it was probably done. So people would know that you were on Medicaid. Like it was a, it, to me, it felt like it was a way to like shame me and call me out. So I would go to the OBGYN and I would fold that bright pink, pink slip of paper up like as small as I could possibly do it to like hand it <laughs> to the to the lady at the doctor's office. And then um, she would un, unfold it and then, you know, wave it out and be like, Katie, come get your come get your insurance slip, you know? So everybody in the office, everybody in the waiting room knew like you were the person that's on Medicaid with this bright pink slip. So there was just, there was a lot um, of shame during that time in my life. Um, I was going to job interviews and, you know, as it's going along, as it's progressing, I'm showing more. So um, it, as far as like jobs, it was really hard to find anything. So I went back to like my high school job. I was, um, I had worked fast food in high school. So I went back to work with them and I could borrow my dad's car on occasion, you know, to be able to get to work. Um, but at that point, you know, I was really, I was dependent 
on other people and I had all, always been a very independent person. So this was this was a really tough time for me. Um, I did have a friend of mine offered that I come move in with her. And uh, so that was my plan for a little bit. I was gonna go move in with her and she was married. And later on she found out she was also pregnant. So that offer had, had been taken cause they weren't, you know, she was gonna need her bedroom for the baby. So, I mean, that was understandable, but that was another, um, you know, opportunity that I felt like a door was being shut on. Um, my mom started taking me to a crisis center, um, and it wasn't in our town. Um, it was in it was in a different county, which I thought was odd. But over the years, I, I think I've realized that the crisis center in our town was really close to where she worked. So I don't know if maybe that had something to do with it. But um, she was making me go to this crisis center, and I, at first I thought, well, that's great. Um, you know, they're supposed to help with like parenting resources. So, um, and at this point, this- at this point, you're still totally certain that you want to parent that you don't know oh, how absolutely. you're going to do it yet. Absolutely. But abortion was abortion was never even a thought like her father and I never even discussed abortion. It never came up and, and adoption would have never entered my mind at all. Like I, I knew my plans were in life eventually i would be a mother it wasn't really that i planned on being a mom at 19 but you know here it was and it was like parenting 110 percent that that's what my intentions were so you know i'm just hitting the ground running trying to 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 get everything together because i'm on a limited time frame you know so I'm, so I'm, when you went to that PRC, the Pregnancy Resource Center. Right. Did you, I remember you saying that you had kind of walked in and they were already having the adoption discussion, even though they hadn't asked you what you wanted. So there was a very good chance that perhaps your mother had called ahead something and said, this is what we are going to do. Like the adoption decision had been made for you, but not by you at all. I've wondered that over the years. Like, I mean, day one, I think I I went to that center maybe three times and you had to walk through, like they had this little boutique area with clothes and diapers and all that stuff. And then they had this little counseling room in the back. And so I would go back there and with this counselor and all she would discuss was adoption. And and I, I would be like, but I'm not here to talk about adoption, like you're supposed to help people with parenting resources and, and I want to parent, you know, I'm thinking like you have this entire boutique out front with all these things. Um, why, why is she not discussing parenting with me? And, you know, I've wondered over the years, like, was there a call made ahead to make sure that, that parenting was not discussed because she wouldn't let me get a word in edgewise and she would just say, but all you have is love. All you have is love. And and it was kind of like, well, that's where, that's where you fit in. You're the parenting resource center. Like that's where you are supposed to come in with like the resources to help me get on my feet in order for me to be able to parent. So I think after about like the second or third, you know, counseling session with this lady, I, I was just like, no, I'm not, I'm not going back because this lady's not helping me. And she's wasting time, um, which I was, you know, was very limited for me. So at that point, my mom then takes me to our church and we go, 
you know, I'm thinking again, here's somebody that's going to listen to me, to ask me what I want to do and to help me make that happen. And I go sit down and, and the first thing out of the pastor's mouth is, I have a brother in North Carolina and he and his wife can't have kids. And, you know, I'm just like at first, like in disbelief, like, is he like, you know, propositioning me for for this baby that's like developing still inside of me? Like this, it, it was it was a twilight zone. Like, I can't believe like, this is how he started the conversation. Um, so like, that was heartbreaking. I, I think I excused myself. Like, I, I don't think I said, you know, at the time authority was, was important to me, you know, so I'm pretty sure like, I didn't say anything ugly to him. But um, I think it's I, just, I like, to me, it's horrifying that it's like you sit down needing help. This is going to be this last line of defense because by this point, your mom had taken you to the resource center, had you shadow families of children who, you know, were adopted, like all of these different things. Like she's really pushing this. And you felt like this pastor was your last line of defense to be like, someone listen to me. This is what I want to do. I need the help to do it. And instead, he looks at you like this juicy steak set right in front of him that can solve his baby needs issue, you know, for for his brother. And I understand that because I think a lot of couples that struggle with infertility and trying to build their families, like we are very compassionate to that. But when that completely usurps like our desire to do what the woman wants and to help her, especially a woman who's wanting to keep her child and, and parent, like that's just the ethics behind this are are completely lacking. I think it's a conversation that maybe is not even being had within some of these circles because it is assumed, like you said, when you look down on paper, like, what does this woman have? She just has love. It's not enough. And the irony, I feel like, when we compare this to the abortion argument, when a woman is abortion-minded or abortion-vulnerable, everything that these PRCs and churches and everybody says is your womb should be the safest place in the world for this child because of that maternal bond. You should want to protect this child. This is going to damage you if you choose to terminate, right? Like we put so much on that maternal bond, but then the second that adoption becomes, you know, an option on the table, suddenly it's just a maternal bond. It's something that can go away very easily. Like you need to get over it. Like it's not that big of a deal. Think about you're you're being selfish, right? Put this child first. Oh, yeah. I, I, w- I was told in so many ways like I don't know if anybody point blank looked at me and said you are selfish but calling me selfless and brave is another way of also calling you know if I do if I make the choice of adoption is also saying I am selfish and a coward if I choose to parent Mm. it was like done with a happy face but the message was loud and clear that right. nobody looked at me as capable or worthy of of my motherhood. Right, which is uh, that, and, and again, that's that parallel to when it comes to abortion, like so much at the root of it is women feeling like they are not enough. They are not enough. They are not capable of doing this. The most merciful thing they can do is to terminate this child. And yet we have a similar thing happening with adoption where 
not only do the women feel not enough to parent, but you have people literally making lists showing you how you are not oh, enough yeah. Yeah. To, to parent this child. I never had to do the, and I mean, they still do that today. There's still agencies that do that where you have to write out, well, what can you provide love? What can they provide? And, it, you know, it's a laundry list of vacations and college and blah, blah, blah. So yeah, I, you know, I was told point blank, all you have is love. And so it seems like everybody had some kind of ownership in my pregnancy at that point, because, um, because in their eyes, I wasn't worthy of motherhood. Um, so they had some kind of say and some kind of ownership in what, you know, I was wanting to do. Nobody ever even asked, what do you want to do? It's like they had ownership over my choice altogether. Um, you know, and I had to, that was something my mom had me do was there were two adoptive families. There was one from the, the crisis center and there was one at our church and they both had um, little girls that were adopted. And I think both of them were like four and five years old. And um, that was one of the things I had to do was go stay at their house for a day. Like, so this was two separate weekends where I had to go stay with them and see how their families interacted and have dinner with them and all of this stuff, I guess, to like show me that adoption was was the better choice. And um, I think that like put a fire in me to want to parent my daughter even more. Um, it definitely didn't have the effect I think that was intended. So all of this happens. And then, know, and then you the, have the, the meeting with the pastor, and that was kind of the pivotal one, right, that broke you, I would say, the, in a lot of ways. The pastor, I think, was the one that finally broke me because, I mean, this was basically me going to, to you know, the church, to God, um, and being told that I, I was basically seen as – as an incubator of somebody else's child. And I think that moment just was was a pivotal moment where I lost a lot of hope and I went home and uh, I was at the house by myself. I, I, I don't know, maybe my parents were at work. I, I'm not sure, but I remember kind of having a breakdown in the living room thinking, you know, I've, I've shamed my family. I've lost the boyfriend. Um, Obviously, I'm incapable of motherhood because I thought that I was this high achieving, um, you know, I thought I was fairly intelligent. I thought I had a good work ethic, but obviously I'm delusional. I, I thought all these decent things about myself, but nobody else can see them. And, and now I'm doing this to a child. Um, how selfish of me to continue this pregnancy to do this to a baby. And that's when, um, and that's when I considered having an abortion. Um, I really didn't see any other way out. Adoption to me was such a terrible fate um, to be separated from this baby that I wanted more than anything in the world. Um, to not be her mother and for her to not be my child and for us to live separate lives was such a terrifying um, outcome for me that I thought maybe the more merciful thing would be for me to have an abortion. And at this point, 
you know, I'm, I'm probably five months along. So I kind of start working it out in my head. Like, how am I going to, you know, this isn't, this isn't going to be something that's going to be quick or cheap. And I kind of just start processing through my head. Like, how could I even afford to do that? Who would, who would drive me? Like, this isn't something I can, you know, go to and come back by myself. And, um, you know, for a few minutes, I just sit there and contemplate how, how do I have, how do I have an abortion? And, um, I don't know. I, I knew I didn't want an abortion. I wanted my baby more than anything in the world. Um, and at that point, I was just like, I'm going to have to work harder. Like, I'm going to have to just be so determined and prove to everybody that um, that I really want this, that I'm really capable of uh, parenting my daughter. And so I think that was kind of a turning point where I just really got focused on how am I going to, I've got to find a place to live. You know, I've got to be able to get a car. You know, at, at this point, I'm, I just turned 19. And uh, you can't really do much of anything at 19 without having, you know, having a co-signer. So it's like, how do I get a car? Um, how do I qualify, you know, for a loan for a car without like somebody co-signing? So it's just like, okay, I've got to like prove to my parents that this is the thing I've wanted more in, in my life. Well, and one of the most heartbreaking kind of visuals for me, you talked about how you went back to that pregnancy center and started taking classes and you had like a whole section of your room where you had started stocking up on baby supplies. And that was, yeah, that, that was the crisis center that was actually closer to us. And I really wish that I had spoken I wish I'd had a one-on-one -on -one with one of the volunteers there because as I got to know them over the years, because I did stay in touch with them, um, I think they would have listened to me. But I had already been shot down, you know, by so many people that I was really scared to like open myself up to anybody else that was going to be like, "I'll take your baby," or, you know, "You need to place your baby for adoption." Like I, I just, I didn't. I didn't want to take that chance. I could, I mean, I could understand that because if you're basically like, I'm going here to get parenting supplies and I don't want them to know that, you know, adoption could, could be any type of option because then they are, you know, then I become the juicy steak again. Because then they're going to, they're going to start pushing me into that and, so, you know, I'm, I'm at this crisis center and they had parenting classes and I'm going to every time they're offered and I'm available, you know, I'm not working. Uh, I was at the parenting classes, you know, two, three times a week. So my room was full of, I had diapers, I had clothes, I had baby monitors, I had a car seat. Um, my, you know, and, and we can't have this conversation at my house, but I'm thinking, if we can't have this conversation, at least my actions are are going to prove to my parents that that this is something that I'm I'm willing to work really hard for. If I can just get help for you know however long it is I need, you know, a couple of years until I can get on my feet, get back to school, get my degree, and then and then I'll be you know my daughter and I can have our own apartment and and be out on our own. Um, so it was it was really difficult you know having having to show actions and not being able to have conversations 
And like after, after that day with the pastor, like I was, I never went back to church. I was never, it was kind of like this unspoken, I was never invited back to church and I never went back to church. Um, I did have, there was a, a family member that came over um, and I can, I came downstairs and that family member was there and it was just like, oh, hey, you know, what are you doing? Um, and they were all going to an event without me and they left and didn't invite me and it was just you know it was just this feeling of wow like i am i am just such a shame to this family i wasn't invited to thanksgiving i wasn't invited to christmas so that closed off even more um people that i could you know i was isolated at that point i i have found out you know, later through the years that there were family members that asked about me and there were family members that offered me a place to live, but none of that was ever communicated to me during this time. And I think, um, so I think it was, it's worth noting also, like you definitely grew up in a religious family because you talked about you would go to the March for yeah. Life and you were very pro-life. And so I think that's always the irony that gets me is like it was literally through this forced adoption that you even that abortion even entered your realm of thought because at least there would be closure there which is so heartbreaking to me that um i and and we've talked about this that is a really prevalent thought in the adoption community and i think most people who are pro-life think that everybody who has ever been adopted or a birth mom or anybody must be totally pro-life but when you experience this level of trauma it actually leads people the other direction where a lot of them now are considering should I should I have just had an abortion because at least then it would have been over there wouldn't have been this child out there and they become very vocal about that and so I think understanding your upbringing and how I mean I think I referred to earlier as like spiritual gaslighting how much it was people who should have had your best interest and you know Christ's love, whatever it was that they were professing that they, you know, lived their life by. And yet those seem to be the very ones who were manipulating you and saying, this is God's plan. This is all God's plan. I grew up in a very pro-life household. We went to the march every year. Like I knew what abortion was, you know, when I was nine, 10 years old. Um, It has, I mean, and we've discussed this. I don't really know where I fall on the spectrum anymore as far as pro-life and pro-choice. I I am pro-family preservation. I am at a point where if, if a mom wants to parent her child, I want every support system available to her for her to make that decision. Um, But yes, I grew up in a very pro-life family and it was not it was not and a very religious family so it was not pro-choice people and it was not atheists you know that were treating me this way well and and, and in a lot of ways that is the like both of those identities you've kind of lost because you don't really know where you're at on the spectrum when it comes to pro-life or pro-choice and even religiously like pro-life and religion were used to really manipulate you in a lot of these ways. And I think that's what I want people to understand who are listening to this podcast and, you know, are 
holding the sign that adoption's the loving option at rallies and stuff. And and we just, we never think to critique this or question it or realize how there can be a lot of very unethical things happening, how there can be a lot of things that are doing so much damage that we are creating a, a following generation of people who are going to be very opposed to um, our beliefs because of the fact that this didn't make them more pro-life, their mom choosing adoption. Like in a lot of ways, there was trauma that could have been mitigated. Abor- or adoption, rather, cannot always be avoided. Sometimes it is necessary, and you and I have talked about that. Like, we understand that. But there are so many that are not necessary. It is a temporary time in a woman's life when she just needed a little bit of help and assistance and room to breathe, and then she can parent. But because we have created you know, an industry, which I know we talk about the abortion industry all the time, but we've also created an adoption industry. We have created this model that um, is fed by like monetary needs and and, um, greed, right? But then also by, by a very natural, I think, I would say almost desperation to have a family. And so people who are not able to have biological children, a lot of times like there's this double payoff where it's like, not only do I get this family, but I'm also doing something good, right? Like that's the story we tell ourselves. Like we're helping this child who, you know, their mother is, and you've listed these off before. We always, our idea of what the first mom is, right? The birth mom is that she's probably addicted to drugs or she's too young or she's irresponsible or all these different things that we put on these women. When in a lot of cases, that's, I mean, that's not it at all. There are women who would be capable if they had this support, if this $30,000 that was going to the fundraiser for the couple, you know, to adopt this child went to that mother instead, like the the first mother, there's a very good chance that she could actually raise her child and keep her family intact and not just have this ripple of trauma that does end up impacting the pro-life uh, ethos negatively all the time because of, because people have been so hurt by it. So after you you went through this and you had these months of you know trying to prove to your parents that you were willing to work really hard and at what point did finally the binders show up with the pictures and with the you have to make a decision now and pick a family? Well, um, it's. You know, it's I'm probably pushing seven months pregnant, and um, I her father was really hard to get in touch with, and so I I finally get in touch with him, and it's just like, you know, I'm being I'm being pushed into adoption, and I'm really not seeing any way out of this. Like, is there any way that that you can help me? And he was pretty much a, a dead end at that point, and. So one day my mom's just like, you have to call an agency, um, you know, so I was just like, you know, I'll call the agency, but, but I'm not gonna, you know, really think about that. I'm still, you know, I'm still going to the parenting classes. I'm still trying to find a place to work. I'm still trying to find somewhere to live. Um, so I, you know, just did the whole circled my finger in the yellow book. Cause this, you know, days of the yellow book pages and, um, I, or yellow page books, whatever it's called. <laughs> it's been so long since we've had those. And, um, I find this agency, call the agent 
And she happened to have gone to a church that we had gone to years prior. And I had done like a confirmation class with one of her daughters, you know, so then it's like, oh, this is all, you know, God's plan. He's bringing all this together. So it's just like, oh my gosh. Um, So we meet with her one day and like, I felt like third will, it was just this agent and my mom are just, you know, talking. And at first it was present, it was presented to me, like closed adoption was presented to me, which I completely recoiled from like, no, I'm, I want to parent. Like she never, the agent never at any time said, well, what do you want to do? You would think that that would be like, you know, first question out of her mouth, you know, what is it that you want? It was never asked of me, what do I want? Um, So that was the first meeting. So that didn't blow over well. So we end up having a second meeting. And that's when the whole like open adoption thing is talked about. And it's, you know, it'll be like have an extended family. You can have Christmases with your daughter. Um, it's, it's basically just having extra family. They'll be, they'll have your daughter, um, they'll parent your daughter, but you can have visits. You can have contact whenever you want to. It's, it's just like having, it's just like family. Um, you know, and at this point it's like on one hand, like I felt like I needed family. I I felt so isolated at the time. I mean, there was a small appeal in that only in the fact that, um, you know, it was kind of like, well, if I can't find housing, this is, you know, absolute last resort kind of thing. But I I still, I I wanted to parent. And uh, we came back from, we were coming back home from that meeting and they had given us all these, they they called them life books. So it's the the profile books of, of all these families that are wanting to adopt. And, you know, it just hits me on the way back home. Like, I can't do this. I, I cannot be separated from my child. And I have this, this is like my, my absolute breaking moment. And I start sobbing in the car and I'm just like, I can't do this. I can't go through with this. I, I, and I I can't even see, like I'm crying so hard and uh, we pull off the side of the road and uh, my mom grabs the stack of books and throws them in my lap and just like, just yells at me, "Um, pick a family, just pick a family. and I'm sobbing and I'm just, I, I remember like my daughter's father is black and, and I'm white and I grew up in the South, you know, so race is, you know, obviously on, in my thoughts of, of being very important to my child. And so I remember like thumbing through these profile books, just like trying to find a black face because It's like, you know, she's not going to live with me, which I know like race is going to be important to her. Um, Then I at least want her to like be able to see her face in somebody else. Like I want her to have like a mirror image. Sorry. I want her to be able to have a mirror image of herself because I knew race was going to be a major, a major thing for her. And, uh, I found 
in one of the profile books there was it was a it was a black woman and it was a white man and I thought you know maybe this would be the right thing to do because she is biracial and uh you know that way she would be able to have perhaps both sides of her culture um and as I'm kind of thumbing through their profile book like my mom throws this other book at me and uh she's like this is it this is the family uh these are the ones and uh so then it's like wow like I can't even I can't even pick out the right family for my kid like um I'm just such a loser and uh I think that was just that that was like the end for me I think that was when I just lost every every ounce of hope um so then it was well you have to have a phone call with this family y'all you need to ask questions and it was still like I don't want to do this so I'm trying to do like these small protests because I wasn't you know I I never got in trouble I you know I never got in trouble at school I was always a good student I had I was a I had always been very responsible. Um, so it was like, I had this little protest of like, well, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna write any questions, you know, and, and maybe somebody will, you know, maybe they'll be like, well, why didn't you write any questions? And then I would be able to say something, but that didn't happen. And so we have this phone call with, with, you know, who the adoptive parent, the prospective adoptive parents and, I can't really speak freely because, you know, my parents are on either side of me um, listening to everything I'm saying. So I'm hoping in this phone call that that they will ask me, like, why am I doing this? What, you know, or what do I want out of this or whatever? And that never comes up in the conversation. Like they never asked, well, why are you doing this? Um, so that was another moment where it was just like, you know, a missed opportunity to, to be able to have, to speak up, you know, for myself. And I get off the phone with them and, and my mom, um, my mom was just so happy. And she like does this little like jump, like she jumped up and down and she like clapped her hands and she was just like, Oh my gosh, you know, this is such a blessing. And, uh, I just, I walked to the other side of the house and, you know, fell apart crying and nobody ever came to check on me. And I think that, you know, that was another moment where it was like, (laughs) I, I prayed so much during my pregnancy and I just kept thinking God was going to like open this window or this door of opportunity for me. And every time, you know, I feel like there's an opportunity, it gets slammed shut. And at that point, it was just like, I felt like God was against me. And, and how, how am I supposed to fight God? It's one thing to fight your family. It's one thing to fight the world to me at the time, it was a whole like game over. Like I, I can't, I can't fight against God. And obviously this is, um, he's, he's going with them and he's not going with me on this. Uh, the next, 
the next day I, I called her dad and I was like, look, you know, the time is, time is of the essence and I've got to get help. You know, if we can figure out some way, like, is there a family member of yours that could help? Like I could go to work and somebody in your family could watch her while I'm working and we can just, you know, try to work this out. And uh, he was just like, I'm, you know, he had joined, he quit school, he joined the Air Force and he was like, I'm shipping out next week. I can't have any dependents, like do what you got to do. Um, so that was right around Christmas time and she was due in February. So I think that's like ultimately when I, I think I gave up and I quit working. I, I quit my job. I never left the house again. I refused phone calls. Um, you know, my friends would call the house and I would just have my parents tell them that, that I didn't want to talk to anybody. And I did that for about the last month of my pregnancy. And, uh, you, you also, you shared with me the fact that all the donate or, um, not donations, but baby supplies you'd received from doing all these parenting classes, you took them back to the center. And did that happen yeah. while you were still pregnant or no, was it that after? Was, that was the, when I came home from the hospital after having her. So that last month I would just stay in my room and I, before bed every night, I would practice handing her over because I knew, um, I think I had just resigned myself to death that there was no way that I could survive without my child, that I would just die of a broken heart. And uh, so I was like, she'll be in a better place. She'll be with better people and, um, and I'll die and everybody will live happily ever after. Um, so for that last month, I would practice in my bedroom of how, how would I hand her over mm -hmm. and then accepting death because I just knew it was inevitable. My heart would stop beating and just kind of resigning myself to that for that last month. And, um, so February came and, and I was induced and it was a horrible 36 hours. Um, my epidural failed twice and uh, my mom was there. The agent would come in and out. Um, so I finally have her after, you know, 36 hours and they put her in my arms. And I mean, she was, she was perfect and beautiful. And um, they were going to take her to the nursery and they put me in a wheelchair, um, you know, to take me back to my room. And I, I had gone into shock. Um, I'm not sure. I, I don't know if it was blood loss or whatever, but I'd gone into shock. And I remember being in the elevator and I passed out. Like, I remember everything, you know, going black. And I, and I, and I remember thinking, oh, this is the part where I die. And, and just being at peace with that. <laughs> um, and then I woke up uh, in, in, in the room and they brought her to me and I, I got to hold her, you know, for like 24 hours. And uh, they had told me not to breastfeed her because if I breastfed her, uh, that's when she would get attached to me and I could hurt her. Like I could emotionally traumatize her if I breastfed her. And, you know, I've, I've had children since and, and the urge to want to breastfeed. I, I don't know if this is for everyone. <laughs> 
but the urge to want to breastfeed is is overwhelming you know you have all that oxytocin uh now i know all these things but you have all the oxytocin in your system and i can remember holding her and just this urge to want to breastfeed her and thinking no if i do that i'm going to hurt my daughter and thinking well nobody will know you know nobody's in here nobody will know you did that and then just being like no but that would hurt her um it's just some of the cruelest cruelest things to to do to a young mother were done to me um that i just want to make sure are not done to mothers um yeah and so we've talked can, a lot about uh, that even the ethics of the process, right? And some states have changed the laws um, for the better, but a lot of them have changed the laws for the worse or for, you know, and where we're having, um, you know, a woman is still in the hospital a lot of times and has just gone through this exhausting thing. Her hormones are crashing, all of this. And then you have this adoption agency and, you know, the birth parents like right there with paperwork and here, go ahead and sign this and let's get this done. And because the fear is if the woman does spend more time with her child, that maternal bond will be strong and she will keep the child. And we've seen that Globally, you know, uh, in countries where they have different laws, not be signing papers on hospital beds. But this should not be happening in hospitals. But right, but if you have an industry that is making money off of this, then they know that she has to because if you wait a month or two months or whatever, um, she likely won't because she will. Now the family will see the child. There will be that support system. You actually had an interesting thing happen where your mother had. I wouldn't call it a change of heart, but just kind of this moment of like, well, maybe we can actually bring right. this baby home. And uh, we talked to another friend of ours who had a similar thing happen. The mother was the one really pushing for adoption. And then in that moment had this change of heart, which I think is fascinating to me because I don't know if it's just paying lip service so that you don't feel as guilty, but you know you're still going to go through with it, or if there's that genuine feeling. But I think for a lot of families, perhaps there is. And so if you allow women more time, um, a lot of adoptions aren't going to go through because that attachment is going to happen. And so, again, when we look at this from, you know, the the 6,000 foot up view of it being an industry, of it being, you know, something that can be monetized. Like we see these laws that are not about protecting the child and protecting the woman and doing what's best for this new life. Instead, it's a lot of it is about making sure that the business is effective and successful. And and, and, I mean, it's it's the Wild West. There's so little regulation in this, you know, now that I've I've discovered so many things as the years have gone on. But, you know, I I held her for about 24 hours, I, I think, in Georgia at the time. I guess they had to wait 24 hours before I was allowed to sign anything. I, if it had been one hour, they would have been at my bedside with, you know, pen and paper. Hey, sign this. Um, so I'm assuming back then it was it was 24 hours. But I, you know, it, it was they they came into my room. It was the agent and my parents, and they all stood around the bed, and I'm holding my daughter. And I'm like making guttural, like animal sounds, like, you know, the, the sobbing and the moaning of, of heartbreak. And I'm sure people down the hall can hear me. Um, I can remember nurses kind of coming in and going out and nobody says anything. Nobody says, 
you know, she's obviously in pain. Can y'all do this at another time? Nobody says anything. I didn't read the papers. Um, you know, I can't read the papers. My eyes were swollen with tears. And, and no, I'm, no other, I can't imagine any other contractual like document could ever be signed when the person is clearly under it. duress. I don't even have, I can't legally see the papers. The copies I have, if something happens to that, that's it. They're done forever. I can't, I can't get another copy. Everything is sealed in my state. Um, so I, you know, I have my daughter in one arm. They hand me the paper and pen in my other arm. And I had already gone through in my head, well, what if I, what if I just run away? What if I just leave the hospital? And it's like, I wouldn't get a block away without a family member calling, you know, Child Protective Services because I'm homeless. I have nowhere to be. I have nowhere to go with an infant. Like, where am I supposed to go? And if my daughter gets taken into foster care, what's going to happen? She's biracial in the South. Like, is she going to bounce from home to home? And is she going to be abused in foster care? Like, all of these things, all of these fears and these horrible things are, are going through my head. And it's all in a matter of you have to sign these papers right now. Hmm. Um, so, yes, I, I signed the papers. I never read them. I, it was 20 something years before I would ever read those papers. And I mean, they were notarized. There was not, a, there was no notary in the room, which I have seen happen to other moms where the, the paperwork is notarized at a later date, at a later place. There was not a notary in that room. Um, That's wild to me. And I also, one of the things with the legality that I want to make sure that we mention, because I didn't realize this when I um, became pregnant at 16 myself, like I considered adoption very heavily for the first two trimesters. And I always thought like open adoption is this legally enforceable thing. And you, I mean, six months ago, within the last six months, blew my mind by telling me it's not legally enforceable at all. The second you do that paperwork, like... You know, and I, I don't care if you have a PACA, that's the post-adoption contract agreement, which states have. Um, it doesn't matter. The adoptive parents, all they you signed away your parental rights. You are not legally bound to that child. They're the adoptive parents. If they want to close an adoption, they can close an adoption. I don't care what you signed. Um, I know a mom who has taken the adoptive parents, oh my gosh, it's been years, her, her son's now a teenager, and she kept winning in court, but nothing happens. They still don't have visits. They kept saying, you, you're in an open adoption. You agreed to this open adoption. She wins on paper. It doesn't mean anything. If they don't want to have visits, they don't have visits. They've even moved this family. Um, you know, so that they don't have to maintain this open adoption. So, yeah, I I thought, you know, as a 19-year-old, that all of this was somehow, like, why would it be a thing if it's not even legal? And then when my daughter was about three months old, <laughs> excuse me, she was about three months old, um, 
I get like this first package from the adoptive parents and it, the first part of the letter was on a form letter from the agency and it was mid sentence and it just stopped and I didn't have the rest of the letter and I kept going through everything. Like, did I miss it? Did I lose it somehow? And so I called the agency and I told them, I was like, I have like the beginning of a letter, but, but it, you know, parts of it are missing. And that's when I find out that they say that, they are because I, I wanted to get the adoptive parents' phone number <laughs> so that I could call them. How, like, how did this even happen without me? I didn't have their last name. I didn't have their phone number. I didn't have their address. I mean, this is like how um, how out of it. I, like, this was how much crisis I was in during this time. Is like I never even got that information. But in in the meantime, the adoptive parents have every bit of information on you they have every detail they know your life story they know everything but the first moms are often denied any type of information about the people who are going to be raising their child lady at the agency tells me oh you'll have to earn their last name i just and and at that point it's like i've been had i have been had by everybody and she told me that the adoptive parents only had to send me information for 24 months and then um they could choose to continue sending me things or not so i lived for two years after that in constant terror that they were going to choose to not you know continue sending me information about my daughter um And also, I think it's we need to point out the fact that when your mom, you know, picked this family, said that she felt led to pick this particular family, they were actually one of the farthest away families, like still on the continent, but in a different country. And so, yeah, I mean, very, very uh, difficult even to kind of it's not like you could go to birthday parties or visit or anything like that. So over the years, you would get pictures. They did honor the open um, adoption agreement, uh, which a lot of people don't even have that. Uh, But they, it wasn't what the agency promised to me. There were definitely not Christmases. Um, I had my first Christmas with my daughter when she was, what, 20. Um, You know, but then even with open adoption, it is, it is not easy. Um, It became kind of like a drug. You know, I, her adoptive mother did send me packages about once every three months and it gets to kind of become your drug. You get the package, you get on this high, and then over the next few weeks, you just kind of sink and sink and sink into this very low depression. And then you get another package and then you kind of go on this high. So I did that, you know, for, for years. Well, Um, and then, and then tell me when you finally got to see her, she was small still. Um, when she was eight years old, we decided um, that we would we would all meet in person. So my husband and I went to visit with them. I think we stayed with them about three days. And, you know, it was absolutely wonderful to me. Like, I was on cloud nine. I, I had all these visions of, um, you know, maybe we can all go, go on, like, family vacations together. And uh, maybe I could get her for you know, a week or two in the summers, you know, have all these thoughts and nothing, 
nothing else came of that. Uh, every time I'd be like, hey, do y'all want to meet here? Do y'all want to meet there? You know, it was always, oh, we have other things going on, maybe another time, blah, blah, blah. I did not know. Um, I, I finally came to a place of not asking because I was like, my daughter doesn't like me. Um, she, she doesn't, she doesn't have any concern about me. She doesn't need me. Just like the agency had told me she wasn't going to need me. The open adoption was for me. It was for me to know that she was okay and she was being raised well. So it was like, they were right. She doesn't need me. She doesn't miss me. She doesn't love me. Um, so I kind of lived in that space for a while. And then as my daughter got older, we did, you know, find each other on social media and, and we do have a relationship now that had a profound effect on her at, at eight years old. Um, that was when I became a real person and she really struggled with the fact that I was able to give her away. And, um, the guilt, um, that I've had to contend with over that has been immense. And uh, we are in reunion. Um, my daughter has lived with me for almost two years now. Um, she has a great relationship with her adoptive family. It has, you know, nothing to do. They've been good to her. She loves them, you know, but she missed a lot of who she is and her culture and she has needed that so she has lived here for almost two years now and we have had some really intense emotional conversations and i you know i've heard a lot of things that i needed to hear um which has made me i think even more so an advocate of keeping moms and babies together this is open adoption is not a magic pill it's not a panacea. There's a tremendous amount of trauma when you separate mothers and babies. Um, so that is where I am today. I am pro-family preservation. Yeah, I think um, one of the other things in your story that I found really interesting because we do, you know, we have a, a first mom on our board who um, talks quite a bit about her experience and knowing other um first moms and kind of what they've gone through is, especially if you were already in the pro-life community, oftentimes you have this choice to make, right? Either I'm going to fall into this pit of despair or I'm going to choose to accept this narrative that is I am brave and strong and, you know, did such a good thing and this is wonderful and how how could you not? Which again, I see that very similar to um, post-abortive women where it's like I can either acknowledge what has happened here in this bond that's been broken in the trauma, which is so overwhelming, or I can, you know, take up my feminist flag and this is, I, I made this choice for myself and this is the right thing and it's legal and, you know, just regurgitate all the rhetoric about um, how this was the right thing to do. And when it comes to the abortion issue, we, we often will look at those women and say like, there's some level of denial there about what's happening. But for some reason, when it comes to adoption, we never ask that same question. We just, you know, pile more and more um, praise on birth mothers, uh, first mothers, which I think th knowing that a lot of them need that because the other option is I'm not with my child anymore. And maybe I could have made that work. And like, this is, this is very desperate. But for you, that 
came in the form of you getting so deep into that you were promoting adoption um, within the PRCs and even had said you had done a video for uh, the PRC where you had gotten the baby supplies. I I don't feel like I ever necessarily promoted adoption. I wanted to promote the pregnancy resource center that had helped me out with the parenting classes. Right. Um, So like as far as if a woman had ever come to me and said, I'm thinking about placing my baby for adoption, I probably would have been like, no, <laughs> let's figure out what we can do for you to, to help you parent your, your baby. Um, but, you know, I did see there's this whole um, loving and brave group that, you know, promotes this romanticized look of, of being a first, you know, first mom, birth mom. And, you know, a lot of these moms, um, are in support groups crying and mourning and very sad that they are separated from their children. So, but and, and a lot of, of them, the story, you aren't allowed to express the sadness. Everybody wants a happy ending to this to this story and if you um you know i've i've lost people because i i don't even feel like i was very vocal at first when i started you know deconstructing a little more and people are just like no like you can't have anything sad to say about adoption like it's the sacred cow um, well, and that's that's where I think a lot of that gaslighting comes in for these first moms where it's like we need the the peachy testimony about how wonderful it is and how selfless and stuff you were and how this is great and you get pictures of your child, right? And, and again, I think the whole reason I want to do this podcast is because I do see so many overlaps between the abortion industry and the adoption industry in the sense that it's very young like in in the adoption process it's a couple years out right they haven't yeah, had rarely, decades to reflect see a mom like me where her child where her child has a voice that's a big thing is yeah it's really cute when these uh, you know little adoptees are two and three years old and they don't have their own voice and they haven't been able to process what happened um to separate them from their from their biological families um so a lot of these moms are usually just a couple of years in it's you know once your child starts to gain their own voice and they start to question things and they start to realize how they were separated from their biological families and they start to ask questions well and then and then i think the women realize also that lack of support there was so much support for the adoptive parents but not for them and so again now they have this choice right because like like when it comes to women shouting their abortions and things a lot of them i've noticed they're it's a couple years out they're still in that like relief stage where they haven't really thought it through and they haven't deconstructed and we see the same thing with adoption a lot of times it is kind of um fresh into this process but also you bring up this great point that they also haven't had the conversations with their child and so i thought it was really interesting in your story that you were clinging so hard to this adoption is wonderful it's great i'm gonna you know do what i can to kind of support this narrative because you have to because the alternatives i had to to, i had to survive yeah the alternatives able to get out of bed right day you know i didn't die (laughs) which had been my original plan so it was like i i mean there were 
there was a suicide attempt when she was about two years old that was a pretty significant suicide attempt. Mm-hmm. Um, but at that time, I had decided, do who do who do I want her to be when she's older? Do I want her to find my grave or do I want her to be able to get answers from me? Mm-hmm. And I, I think at that point, I decided why well, I can't kill myself because you know if she does come asking questions one day I want to be able to answer them for her and nobody else can answer them for her um so so I think that that you know and and I hear this story a lot with first moms where it's like they do cling to that side of things of everything is going um everything's going to be okay. I did the right thing. I did the selfless thing. And so for you, that actually evolved into when she was a teenager, you considering adopting yourself because. Which I I think if, if it's the mom who's doing the suffering and not the child, because it was sold to me that I was taking on the burden. I was taking on the pain so that my child could have this better life. And I was making the sacrifice of myself for my child. If that was how adoption worked, then then maybe that's okay. But there are, the adoptees do suffer separation trauma. There is a trauma in losing everybody on the planet that you're related to and losing these relationships with your parents and with your grandparents and with your siblings and with your extended family. An open adoption was sold to me that it was for me. And now it's being sold that it's for the children. Um, that it's because they have realized there are so many studies now that um, adopted people, a lot of them are very interested in where they came from and the relationships with their families. Um, so if we're talking about now that you are potentially hurting children, then this needs to be something that is done when it's just absolutely necessary and not in temporary situations where you could keep a mom and her baby together with, you know, just a little bit of support. Um, I think that, and, and this is, so I guess we can tell people now how in the very beginning I almost blocked you from our Facebook multiple times because you, <laughs> you used to drive me crazy because anytime I posted a pro-adoption thing, you would be there with your facts and statistics. and Actually. <laughs> yeah, actually. <laughs> and it drove me nuts. And I'm so glad I didn't block you. And I actually listened and these Thank things you. started to like, you know, get to me because for me – I think because when I was 16 and that second pink line showed up, like for me, adoption was this pressure release valve. Like I I hadn't even been on this earth 18 years and I was supposed to commit the next 18 years for this other human being. And I was terrified at that thought. And so I would tell myself, if I need to, I can go the adoption route. Like I knew that abortion wasn't an option for me, but adoption, you know, that, that could be the thing that I can do if I need to. And ultimately I ended up deciding against it. So I don't have the, the trauma part. And I would even argue that with any unintended pregnancy, there is going to be trauma, whether it's through parenting, placing, or abortion. But we also know there is a scale of trauma there um, for everybody involved. In one case, the the unborn child dies. In the second case, they are separated from their biological parent. And in a third case, maybe they grow up, you know, a little bit harder because they were by definition unplanned for. And so the lack of support after the fact, I I think from the pro-life movement, what we see is people 
pushing these solutions and and this is going to be fine. But then there is not anybody saying to adoptees like, we need we need you in counseling. Like, what do you need from us? And especially first moms, like, what do you need? Like, how can we help you with this? And so you end up seeing kind of compounded trauma with people who are just trying to not drown and trying to do anything that they can to survive. Actually, that reminds me, will you share that story about the dream you had? Because I think it was really powerful. Yeah. There, so this was near the end. Um, and, and this was another thing that was just, you know, another added thing to me giving up. But one night I have this dream and in and, and my dream, I, I come to, and I'm in like this dark abyss. I'm, I'm in water. I can tell I'm in water and I have this beautiful, like flowing dress on, but it's, it's flowing and it's really heavy because, you know, now it's, I'm in water and I'm sinking and I look down and uh, I'm holding my daughter. This is while I'm pregnant. And uh, in my dream, I'm holding my daughter and below me, it's just complete darkness. And I'm sinking further and further into this darkness. <clears throat> and uh, all of a sudden this light appears above me and I look up and these hands are reaching into the water. And I, I take my daughter and I push her up to the hands and they pull her out of the water and I sink into this dark abyss and into this peace. Um, and I woke up thinking, you know, I'd been praying this, this whole time while I'm pregnant, like God, show me a sign, show me a way. And I took that as, as God was, that was like a dream uh, that God inspired for me to basically give my daughter to other people and to sink into this abyss. And so I, I kind of, you know, that was one of the things I kind of held on to, to for years, thinking like this had to have been God's plan. You know, I, I had this dream. And um, so when I start kind of deconstructing from all of this and, and my daughter and I had had some conversations about our, you know, our traumas, both of us had, had suffered through the years of not being with each other. And uh, so I, I start, I looked at a dream book and found that like drowning dreams are usually just your brain's way of showing to you that you're overwhelmed. Um, so it was like, wow, this this dream that I had was basically my brain processing the fact that I was overwhelmed in this situation. And that had been a dream I had held on to for years, thinking that that was like this divinely inspired dream telling me to, to give my, like my daughter as, up yeah, Like as if it was a sign. And I think the thing that broke my heart about that dream is – in the work we do, I think as a pro-life feminist organization, a lot of times there there are the hands that are ready to grab one person, right? Whether it's the woman or it's the child. And yet the true solution is what if those hands had grabbed you and your daughter and, and pulled daughter. you both and, out, and right? That, like that was the confusion during that time. Like I grew up thinking your like higher that. power wanted to let you drown and all these people wanted to let right. you get drowned. And, and I can remember thinking, but but I chose life because everybody was like, thank you for choosing life. And it's like, okay, we're past that. I chose life. Like Now help I need, me. I I'm, I'm in the abyss. I need help parenting. Yeah. Like I'm not going to be um, 
I'm not going to be a leech. I'm not going to be a parasite. Like I have plans for my life. There are things I want to do, but I just need a moment of help. And it was, it was withheld from me. Um, so that really messed me up for a number of years. I quit college. I went back to college, excuse me. And I never even got my, never even got my bachelor's because I struggled so much with my self-worth after that thinking, wow, if I'm not even worthy of my motherhood, uh, I'm not worthy. What am I worthy of? Um, so I ended up, I dropped out. I had enough credits at the time I was able to get like a two year degree in business. And, and then I went and worked multiple jobs because, um, apparently that's how I react to trauma is I don't sleep and I don't stop. I just, I work myself. (laughs) That's, that's my uh, trauma reaction is I work and stay awake all the time trying to avoid, um, the silence think about my trauma and yes i've been to therapy i've (laughs) i have a number of years of therapy under my belt well and i think (laughs) i think even because i i look at this from somebody within the pro-life movement like not all women have access to that right like that is kind of a luxury having having therapy not all therapy is absolute luxury yeah and so we have a lot of women who are walking around wounded who kind of are having to cling to this this bowie right this life raft that's like you're selfless and brave and that's kind of it but you are still sinking like every day and and that's not going to be all women's stories I guess we should say that every woman's going to have a different story but I've met far too many to ignore this at this point that it absolutely is um, it is very difficult to function and live without your child in your life without that loss going somewhere it's going into an addiction. It's going into self-sabotage. It's going into working, you know, two and three jobs so you don't ever have to stop and think. It's going to manifest itself somewhere. And so I think as, again, somebody in this movement, a movement that is very heavily pro-adoption, and I hope that, you know, for everybody who's listening, this wasn't taken as just we're, we're bashing adoption. This is, we need to take a critical look at it. We need to see that there are absolutely yes. cases like this that there are sadly are not unique. mothers and babies separated. Our adoption, our infant adoption numbers are off the charts compared to other Western countries. I mean, we're insane compared to to Canada, Ireland, Australia, the UK. Because um, so much of it has been monetized. We've created an industry. Right. And it's I think the average infant adoption is $40,000 in the U.S. And there are estimated one to two million waiting couples. But the supply, you only have about I mean, it's a it's an astronomical number compared to other Western nations, but there's 18,000 estimated a year infant adoptions. I would venture to say the majority of those were unnecessary. Well, Um, and so and so that's what I'm just a solutions oriented person. And so when I look at this and say, like, okay, what is the ethical way to handle this? Like, again, we know that there are going to be those cases, whether it's due to addiction, abuse, something like that, where family preservation is not an option. But why as a movement have we not focused on this, you know, possibility of 
adopting both the mother and the child, like giving them that family, that support system that they need and being there for them. Because if ultimately like the the child is the main focus and you want what's best for them and you're not commodifying them, this has nothing to do with you just, you know, doing something for yourself, but truly caring about this child, the best thing you can give a child is going to be their biological mother when possible. And so why is that not something that exists? This idea that we're, and I don't want to knock women that are addicts. There, you know, there need to be more programs out there. Absolutely, I love seeing they have these programs now where they're helping incarcerated mothers have relationships yes. with their kids. There needs to be a lot more family preservation and family focused systems. I was failed by every system: religious, family, social. Every system failed me. I started. I, I started making for other families. Yeah, I started making a list as you were talking of all the people who could have been, you know, a friend. that that life raft for you. Right. And it was right. between the PRCs, the pastors, the nurses, the doctors, the adoptive parents. Like these are just the ones that you came into contact with. That any one of them could have said let's find you housing, come stay with us, we will take care of you. Like if, if somebody has an extra bedroom in their home and can house a mother to keep right. this family together. You know, and there's this thought that, oh, there's all these resources out there. And, and you know, like I've, I've been running oh. a resource page for three years because I was like, I want to find all of these resources. They are so I, hard to find. I want to be able to, to show moms all these resources. I haven't found a housing authority in this country that has less than a two-year wait, when you're pregnant, you don't have two years to wait for housing. There are so many systems that need, that just need to be completely overhauled in our country. There are not all of these resources out there. Well, and it's Um, something that I think we even agree on this, the government's not necessarily capable of. So this right. is where you have something like the the sleeping giant, right, of the pro-life movement. You have so many people. You do have um, time and talents and all these other things. And yet because of this adoption narrative that we have never taken a critical look at and we've never fully discussed the nuances of, it's just, oh, yeah, that's that's what – this is someone else's problem. Go handle it. Like, go do this. Like, obviously, place your child. That's going to be the best thing. Like, everybody agrees. When in reality, again, the other alternative could be do you have a spare room in your home where you can include this woman and child into your home where you can, you know, not legally, of course, but like adopt them in some way and and offer them that? Because I know for me, the only reason that I. That's what that's what church. Oh, that's what that's 100 percent. Right. Faith communities should be. It has to be the government. Like, I, I wish there were government programs that weren't maybe so tied up in red tape and a lot of government programs have really long lines yeah and, and, and there's get the help that you need there's, there's some also a supplemental that yeah. i feel like the church tax exempt more. i feel like communities can be doing a lot more but when you have the oh just give your baby away mentality um yeah, it's, it, it, it just it needs goes, to be a shift. A culture shift needs to happen in this country. A hundred percent. I think a big part of it is realizing the issue. And that is the only reason I was able to raise my child on my own is because of familial support. And I think sometimes we right. have to be that village. We have to be that sisterhood. We have to be that family for other women who, when possible, do want to do that. And I totally agree. I think that whatever your 
specialties are or where your passions lie. Like obviously addiction is something that, you know, has has impacted my life as well. And so I, I love what you said about that, that not even just writing off women who are dealing with that, if there is a way that you can help them, like maybe that is something that, that you have a road you've walked down before and you can right. journey with this woman and keep her with this child and that would still be what's best. Like, right. I agree. And, There's, and I, I think that's kind of a, a caricature of, of so many birth moms for people to be able to write us off we have to be failing in some way. We have to be addicts. We have to be whatever. There has to be something that makes it necessary. Your vision of an unworthy mother, you people want birth moms to be that person because, because if they're not, how do you justify separating her from her child? Um, so many birth moms I know are I know nurses, I know doctors, I know, uh, you know, IT people, I know women, they, they're just every day, they're like me, like, I was perfectly capable of being a mother, I didn't have the support that I needed at the time. And there are a lot of moms and there are a lot of adoptees who want to see that, that culture shift. Um, in our society of being a community, being a village, coming together and helping families stay together. When when it is possible to keep families together, they need to be kept together. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Katie, for sharing that with us. I Thanks think for like me. there's a huge call to action in there. And I love how you use your voice and your story and this trauma and this pain to help others avoid that and to protect them you know in so many ways you've probably mothered more women than you realize just by coming in and being that mama bear that's protecting them from going through the same pain that you've gone through and I think that's incredibly um beautiful and powerful so where can people find you um I run a resource page it's called the family preservation project um, I'm on Facebook, WordPress, Instagram, TikTok. Uh, Shut up. You're nobody... on TikTok? Really? Yes. Wow. I'm impressed. I figured that's probably where a lot of the young moms are. <laughs> so, I, you know, this old lady's got to get in on that. But, um, you know, I'm not a 501c3. I don't want any money involved. There's no money involved. Yeah, this in is page. educational my and is helping. specifically educational and resource. Yeah, helping um, And it can be for moms not even considering adoption. I mean, it's just, it's all parenting resources as I find them. And feel free to, like, submit resources that you think are great. Um, I'm also a board member of Saving Our Sisters. Um, that is a 501c3. Wonderful organization. And they, they are also an educational group. They do um, moms that are considering adoption can come to Saving Our Sisters. They can talk to actual birth moms for, you know, numbers of years behind us as, as birth moms. And you they also you out. also work with women who have had adoption plans that now they want to. They want to revoke. Um, in a lot of states, they still do have revocation windows. So Saving Our Sisters is one of those. Uh, it's the only organization that I know of that if a mom, it, because these moms are not told how to um, 
to revoke. They they aren't told how to to go about the legal process of of their revocation. And they're the wild thing we we've talked about this before. They're villainized, like in media oh, yeah. and in TV shows and everything um, else. A woman I choosing have her text child. Messages and you've seen text messages. I have text messages of pro life, very very popular pro life leaders. I have text messages from evangelical empires um, of them threatening some of these moms. Um, if, yeah. And again, so, if we were putting that child first, we would also be putting that woman first. Right. We would be, you would be doing with, everything. And with these moms that come to SOS, my goodness, one of one of the moms is interning for NASA right now. Like these are these are women. 99% of the time, they are just in a vulnerable circumstance that has led them to it's think that their child will be better off without them. Mm. And, uh, you know, given some breathing room, given some encouragement, and given a little bit of support, um, I think over the years that SOS has been involved, I think uh, there have been maybe three moms that did go through with an adoption and I'm friends with two of them on Facebook. So it's not even, you know, we aren't telling moms like you can't, you know, don't do an adoption. No, you're definitely a resource to support what they want. And you need to know um, your rights and you need to know your what your future may hold for you and your child. Like you need to be, it needs to be an informed choice and moms are not receiving informed choices today. Absolutely. Um, so, yep. Well, thank you so much again. And we're going to have other episodes. Um, you have explained the history of, like, you're just this fount of knowledge. And I know you like to be all humble and act like you're not, but you're a brilliant yeah. adoption genius. Um, <laughs> and I'm sorry that everything well, I, I think, has you know, led I, you I, to I, this, I, but. I pulled on that thread on the sweater and it's. It keeps unraveling, unraveling. (laughs) but you have such a great way of explaining it. So we're going to have more episodes with you explaining the history and a lot of these roots and this machine that so many women are up against um, and the work you're doing now and and, um, some of the laws that people, especially pro-life people, need to be critical of and taking a look at. And so we will have more. There definitely needs to be more regulation in this industry, and it needs to be there to protect mother and child, not to protect the agent season the facilitators yes 100 so i'm excited to learn about all of this with you as we continue this kind of podcast series i realized right away like your story is so powerful we have to do an episode and then i'm like oh my gosh your brain is full of so much information we have to do a series like that's what's going to ultimately come of this because um, <laughs> people just people need to know i need to know they need to not they need to go back and unblock you so that they can actually hear the things that that you're saying on facebook well, some of them some of them can no. <laughs> some of them can keep you blocked but i think um it no but i'm i'm Destiny, I just thank you for not blocking me. Thank you for letting me, you know, that that first year or so of me kind of coming out of this fog and realizing um, that my daughter was hurt in this process was a um, was quite a time in my life. It was it was a struggle, and I just thank you for sticking with me through that. No, I'm so glad. Um, I'm. You were, you were honestly the inspiration of my resource page because you had mentioned it years and years ago. And I was just like, that's a really good idea. Um, so I kind of held on to that. So I, I appreciate you sticking, I, sticking it out. This is now just a circle jerk. But seriously, like, I'm so glad that <laughs> I am so glad that 
I did and that you did, that you were persistent in getting that truth through because I, when I look at where I've come, like there's not a lot of issues that I change my mind on because I think things through so thoroughly. This is one of those issues that I have gone, I mean, 180% change in just understanding the ethics of it and how it needs to be done. And so I'm excited that we can invite other people onto this journey to um, hopefully have that same awakening or at least awareness now, which is really important. Yeah. So awareness. Yeah. Yes. Well, thank you, friend. Awesome. All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye.